This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, it is good to see you guys this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning, uh, the New Testament book of Acts chapter 17. If you got your Bible, I invite you to open it to chapter 17. I'll give you a minute to find that. Um, this last week, I guess it was um, Friday night, um, my wife and Jake's wife, who were both um, teaching again in the fall, went away and did a little overnight lesson planning uh, thing, getting ready for the new school year. And so I was on twin duty and twin duty through the night. And our boys like to keep the nights interesting. They like to come in and check on us and make sure we're doing okay. Make sure we're resting. Wake us up so that we can confirm that. Um, Sometimes check out our mattress compared to their mattresses. Make sure that they're not getting a raw deal on the quality of their beds. But one of them was with me off and on through the night, and I had uh, what is a a reoccurring kind of uh, preacher dream. Preachers have this, uh, it's fairly common, but it was one of those nightmare in the pulpit kind of dreams. I couldn't read my Bible, I couldn't find the text, nothing was working out right, I was, you know. And what's funny is throughout my dream, Two bizarre, one wasn't bizarre, one was bizarre, one was just funny. I could see Dan Smith sitting out there, and he was just going, (laughs) like pathetic, pathetic attempt to preach. Um, Second, a toddler that I didn't know was sitting on my music stand, and I couldn't figure out what he was doing there and why the stand was holding him up. I think that was, uh, so my, I don't know how this morning will go, but I'll be glad to get it over with, so... Uh, that's a common dream. Also, just wanted to say briefly, if you like um, the way we just sang and worship to what a friend we have in Jesus, that arrangement was actually created by John. So John is, yeah. John is incredibly gifted musically and will often have to sort of matsplain things for me when I want to know why we can't do this or that or why it would take so long. Um, I think everything should happen quicker. So sometimes he's like, let me just break it down like you can. Imagine you have a gun. I'm like, I'm with you. Um, And the gun won't fit in its case. I'm there. Case is too short, you know. So he'll kind of go into this. And and if I'm still not getting it, he'll just say, Tori, could you explain it to him like he's five? And she'll say, okay, you've got three crayons. (laughs) And only one of them is green. Uh, And so usually I'll understand it, but... uh, uh, incredibly gifted musicians here, so grateful for all uh, the time that they put in. Every minute out here has hours behind it, so grateful for them. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about where, where God uh, and culture come to intersect this morning. The passage that we will look at, the passage that we'll look at, is one of the most famous discourses in all of Scripture. It's where uh, Paul is brought before uh, the council at the Areopagus. Areopagus. I don't know how to say the word now. It just left my mind. Maybe my dream's going to come true. I'll read it in a minute, and then it'll come back to me. In Athens, 
And the Stoics and the Epicureans want to know what it is that he's preaching. What is it that he's teaching that sounds so different and sounds so foreign and sounds maybe against Roman practice and Roman law? Areopagus? Areopagus. There we go. Um, I'm going to leave that dream back there. Areopagus. He goes in there um, and he talks to them about the God that they're attempting to worship but they're ignorant of. And what makes it so powerful is that there are things in it that really teach us about how it is that we um, go about living out Christ in a very uh, pluralistic society like we find ourselves today. And yet, our tendency, if we actually study this text to the degree that any of us do, our tendency with this text is to deal with it with our minds and not with our hearts. And not with our hearts. And what I want to guide us this morning as we look uh, at Paul's uh, defense of the gospel and his attempt to clarify what it is that he's saying in light of what the Epicureans and the Stoics of his day, the philosophers, the thinkers in Athens already believed, what I want us to do is be guided by three questions that are more devotional questions, right? To help us get what Paul's saying down into our hearts. Let's jump in and let me read straight through the passage and then we'll come back and deal with it through those guiding questions. Verse 16, Acts 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's waiting for the uh, other travelers that are with him on his missionary work to join him, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. This is a picture of Paul's heart going out to people who are worshiping. They're just worshiping in darkness. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day. So he didn't, he didn't just simply confine his talking about Jesus and God and the gospel to, if you would say, the church. He took it into the marketplace, into the life of the city of Athens with those who happen to be there. Verse 18, a group of, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, some of you, that's your fear in sharing the gospel, that you might try to say it, and at least in someone's mind, they would think, what is this babbler trying to say? He seems to be advocating foreign gods, said others. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. There we go. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They were basically coastal elites in our day, always looking for the newest trend, the newest thing. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am 
going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. God, as we look at this profound encounter, that in your sovereign grace you arranged for Paul so long ago. Father, I pray that we would give up neither our minds nor our hearts, God. We would bring them together, powered by your grace, fueled by the goodness and the light of your spirit. God, meet us here in this place as we bring ourselves under the authority and the goodness of your word. I pray that our hearts would be changed, our minds would be changed. God, as a result, our beliefs and our behavior. Father, as we leave this place this morning, we would be a little more in line with the truth. God, captivate us with the beauty of the gospel this morning that has challenged the greatest minds and fed the simplest throughout the history of the church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Paul goes to Athens. The rest of his crew isn't there yet. He's hanging out, walking the streets, checking out the city. Athens had, had lost the glory that it had um, when Greece ruled the known world. It was now part of the Roman Empire, but it was still... It was still the leading, city, the leading city in the Roman Empire and the leading center outside of Rome for culture and politics and education. And they were very proud to be Athenians. They were very proud to be Athenians. Uh, they felt like everyone else was just a notch or two or ten or twelve below who they were as human beings. It was the, the center of world thought still in this day. And Paul's walking around and he's so disturbed by what he sees. It was full of idols and full of temples, many of which you can still see the ruins of and explore and learn about today if you go to Athens and want to do that. Other first century writers, historians, not Christians, as well as second century writers would also make note of what Paul's making note here, that they didn't just have idols, but they did have inscriptions to unknown gods just to make sure, right, that maybe there's a god or gods out there um, that they weren't worshiping that were due honor. And then the Epicureans and Stoics began to debate with him. Now, I'm not going to go deep into Epicureanism and Stoicism because no one mostly cares, 
But uh, they were profound schools of thought in this day. And basically, the Epicureans said there are gods who created things, um, but they live far off and detached from us. It's like a lot of American Christianity. Uh, the, the God or gods are there, but they're really detached from everyday living. You know, God is here, we're here, and, and never the two really uh, interact. And that's how things go. And Stoics said God is everywhere. Every atom uh, is uh, the God or the gods. Uh, we make that up. The trees make that up. Everything makes that up. And Epicureans and Stoics both had uh, different ways uh, to teach people to be what we would call say, but to be uh, made right or to fulfill the highest human uh, potential to seek that which they were, or to find that which they were seeking and looking and longing for. And so Paul butts heads with them intellectually. And they say, hey, this sounds foreign because under Roman law, um, established religions were protected. They didn't care what you worshiped as long as you worshiped Caesar as well. They found that people were far more peaceable and easy to rule if they let them keep their little gods and just made sure that they worship Caesar too. So they drag Paul. I drag him is probably too strong. They encourage him strongly to come with them to the Areopagus and to sit down before sort of the, the leading and ruling council in Athens who would pronounce legal judgments out and be heard by them. So Paul goes in there and he begins to talk. Now, three questions. These three questions, and there's one or two others, and if you guys have been, uh, if you're in home groups, you've probably encountered these uh, once or twice already this summer. But these are good devotional kinds of questions to guide you through any passage or to reflect on after reading a passage. The first question uh, this morning is, what do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about ourselves as we look at what Paul says here? Let's go back. I want to read verses 22 um, through, let's see how far we'll go. Let's read 22, just 22 and 23. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, people of Athens, I see that in every way, in every way, you are very religious. Pa Paul's not being condescending here. He's not speaking in, in tongue in cheek. He's saying, you are very religious. He's just about to let them know that the direction that their religion's going is, is not right. It's lost. It's empty. It's not going to fulfill what they're looking for. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. One of the things that we learn about ourselves, really clearly looking at, at what Paul says here, is that our hearts are wired to worship something. We are wired to worship something. We are created to give our allegiance, our adoration, our affection to something. And we will do that. We will do that. Whether it's another person, whether it's an idea of something, whether it's a, a, a political philosophy or party, whether it's a sport, whether it's a version of ourselves, whether it's a series of goals we want to attain, we will absolutely give our allegiance, supreme allegiance, supreme adoration, and supreme affection to something. We are hardwired by God to do that, which leads us to something else that we learn about ourselves here, that though we are wired to worship um, our hearts are inclined toward idolatry. 
We're inclined toward idolatry. We may not make little idols today, but you and I know that we all have a propensity to struggle with making certain things or certain people in our lives more than they should be. Of elevating them beyond the affection and allegiance and adoration that we have for God. That's what he says here in verse 23. He says, I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship. And I even found one where you could worship a God you don't even know. You don't even know. In a great small book, and you, and you can find the links to the books in the bottom of the apps, the notes section in the apps, just in case you want to check them out. Um, in a great little book that Tim Keller wrote called Counterfeit Gods, he said this, If we look to some created thing, some created thing to give us the meaning hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter who it is. Some of you married the perfect person who turned into someone else a year or two later. And some of you, your spouse married the perfect person who then turned into someone else a few months or years later. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's a goal, if it's the best version of yourself. I mean, how toned do you have to get? How slim do you have to get? How beautiful do you have to get? How strong do you have to get? Until it's deeply satisfying to you and you go, no more. I'm good. I was watching a guy deadlift on Instagram or it might have been uh, the hideous version of Instagram called TikTok uh, that one of my kids was showing me. But he's lifting this bar. I think my son Cade was showing me, football player. He's lifting a bar. He's doing a deadlift, and there's so many 45-pound plates on each side that it's bending like a banana across his back. And he's got a man on each side holding there just in case as if they could stop that if it decided to go down. And he's got a guy behind him, which isn't going to do anything. You know, and he's going down and he's grunting, he's lifting. And I was like, man, brother, you're never going to have to hold a fire truck up above your head. Right? You're just not going to have to do it. It's what, no matter what it is, money. Have you ever found that no matter how much you get, just a little more seems good? Anybody ever found that to be true? You ever gotten a raise and you're like, yes, yes, now. And a year or two later, you're like, if I could just get a raise. It doesn't matter. Your home, your vehicle, your children, whatever it is, friends. What Keller says is absolutely right. He goes on and says this, an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. And here's what's amazing. This is not something that's forced on us from the outside. This is something that our hearts are inclined toward because we're created to worship. We're going to worship something. We're going to give something our supreme adoration, allegiance, and affection. And whatever that is, Whatever that is, we feel in our soul that we have to have it to be happy. We have to have it. Without it, we can't be whole. If anyone pokes at it or threatens it, we're filled with an unrighteous kind of indignation and anger. 
Because they're not just threatening the thing, they're threatening us. One last thing with regard to this question, what do we learn about ourselves, is this. that These, these two realities, the truth that we are wired to worship something and that our hearts are inclined inclined toward idolatry. They, they are little uh, idol factories constantly pumping out if we're not careful. Other things to give our affection to. These two realities should point us to God. They're designed to point us to God. They're given to us to point us to God. That's a little bit, a little bit of what we learn about ourselves as we look at this passage. Second question, what do we learn about God? Man, there could be so many bullets, so many things here that we learn about God from this passage. Let's talk about just a few from verses 24 through 28. Let me read them again. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul begins to pull in now uh, a couple of quotes, a couple of ideas from philosophers of his day that they would have been familiar with and said, this is truth, but it's actually not their truth. They happen to have stumbled onto God's truth. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. What do we learn about God? Right out of the gate here, we learn that God is the creator, sustainer, and Lord of all that exists. He is the creator, sustainer, and Lord of all that exists. Unlike the Epicureans, he's he's not detached from his creation. He rules and reigns over his creation. He's not far from us. He's near to us. Unlike the Stoics, everyone and everything is not God. God rules and reigns over everything. He is close and near to us. He sustains it all, but he is Lord and creator of it. There's a time when it was not, but he was. Sometimes we need to remember this when our world is shaking a bit. You need to tell yourself, I will not be shaken Because the God who holds me in his hands is the creator and sustainer and Lord of everything that exists. It's not up to this government or that government or this virus or that virus. But to the God who is and always has been and forever will be. If you look specifically at verse 24... In verse 29 here, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Does not live in temples built 
by human hands. Which leads us to a second thing here. He needs nothing from human beings. God needs nothing from human beings and sovereignly guides human history. He needs nothing from us. And yet he sovereignly guides human history under his gracious, watchful So what is the background? Paul's not simply responding to Epicurean and Stoic beliefs. He's not simply responding to the philosophies and thoughts and dogmas and cultural whims of his day. He's doing it from a biblical background. Paul is doing it out of a mind saturated with Scripture. And particularly we find him pulling again and again from thoughts in the book of Isaiah. Let's look at one of those briefly right now. Isaiah chapter 45. Starting with verse 18. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. And hear yourself included in that now. Because what what God is saying through Isaiah is that I have not said to my people, seek me in vain. What God is saying to you this morning is when you search for me, I will be found. When you call out to me, I will hear and I will respond. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save them. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. I like that. In the name of me, I say these things and declare them to be true. Because there is no other name higher. By myself I have sworn. My mouth has uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. This passage in Isaiah, we find just dripping in Acts 17. Because it comes from the saturation of Paul's mind in God's word. And as Paul is looking around at all of these temples and all of these idols, he's like, there is a God. Let me tell you about the one true God who doesn't live in any of this and he doesn't need any of this. He's created it all. He's Lord over it all. He needs nothing from us. And yet, this is what Paul gets at in verses 25 and 26. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else from one man. He made all the nations. Part of what he's doing here is saying, Athenians, you're not that special. Right? You're not that exceptional. All people, all nations come 
from a unique God-given beginning. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. What Paul is talking about here is the epics of history, the rise and fall of superpowers and nations and governments and peoples. God is sovereign over it all. He's the creator, sustainer, and Lord of all that exists. He needs nothing from human beings yet sovereignly guides all of human history. One more thing we learn about God here is that in spite of all of this, it focuses on his sovereignty, his righteousness, his power, his transcendence. He is eager to redeem. He's the God who is eager to redeem. Verse 27 says, God did this. God created everything that is and everyone that is, and he sustains it, and he oversees the flow and the movement of human history and of nations so that they, these people that inhabit God's creation, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Though he is not far from any one of us. This is so closely tied to the fact that we're created to worship. Yet inclined to idolatry. Because we we have such a need to give our supreme allegiance to something. And there are good reflections of this everywhere in our lives. And we know this. When you see a great movie or you eat at a great restaurant, you tell people about it. You proclaim it. You want to share it. You post about it. There's something in the human heart that wants to sort of shout praises when we're stirred by something, something that's impacted us. And all of these things are meant to point us toward the God who is our creator and our sustainer. You're here this morning because God chose to wake you up this morning. He chose to maintain your health through the night to cause your heart to beat, your brain to function. He's sustaining you. And he's Lord over everything. A couple of statements here that I know I have included in this series before, but they're just too good to include once um, and are especially profound here. As people throughout history have discovered this truth, the first is from mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis. Creatures are not born, listen to this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. There's something else that will satisfy it. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. So in even the arousal of this deep desire that is so difficult to satisfy, C.S. Lewis saw the grace of God, the mercy of God, saying, I'm going to give you this hunger, and I will not allow anything to satisfy it but me. And my desire... is that 
you allow that hunger to guide you to me. Augustine in his autobiography, Confessions, Augustine was the guy constantly pursuing things to fill this deep void that he had in his life before finding Christ. And he said, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Can I say there is a a once-for-all degree to this, and there is a continual degree to this. This is true when we come to faith in Christ. But if you've walked with Christ very long, you find that this is something that you have to, to walk in regularly. We have to remind ourselves when I feel most restless that maybe I feel most restless because my heart's drifting a little from Jesus. And I need to spend some time with him, receive from him. What do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about God? And finally, what do we learn about the world? What does the truth of this biblical text teach us about the world we live in, the world we operate in, the culture that surrounds us? One thing is this, that it's always trying to develop systems to fill the human void. The world has always been doing this and always will be doing this. This is part of what Paul's getting at um, when he says, or, or not Paul, but when Acts 17 says that they were always looking for something new. Verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This is another way of saying that same thing. They were always looking for new ideas, a new thing. The next. Why, why is that? It's because no, no matter what we have or how much we have, it's going to be unsatisfying apart from Christ. Now, things aren't bad. Being toned isn't bad. Believe it or not, I'd like to be a little more toned. Money in your bank account's not bad. I'd like to have more money there. All of these, I mean, strong friendships, vocational success, all, all these, these aren't bad things. They're good things. But we can give them disproportionate amounts of our heart and our mind. We always have a need for something more because there is in us a desire that only God satisfies. Only God satisfies. And when we allow him to satisfy that, everything else is ordered properly. And appropriately and finds its good and perfect place in our lives. We're able to, to contribute to conversations that are already taking place. There's something evangelistically here that we need to hear that unless you and I are entering into conversations that are already going on in our culture, people are, are not going to be prone to listen to us about the gospel. This is what Paul's doing here. He's entering in to the thoughts and the discussions and the philosophies of his day. Leslie Newbegin in the Gospel in a Pluralist Society said that if I do not know the purpose for which human life was designed, I have no basis for saying that any kind of human lifestyle is good or bad. I think he's absolutely right, and yet we live uh, in a country filled with people, filled with people who do, do not know the purpose for which human life was designed, and yet they are quick to say, This human lifestyle is right or is wrong. We're always trying to find something. We're always trying to to, to fill our lives, the world is, with something. They're trying to create some kind of structure and then sell it to you 
and say, this is what you're looking for. This is who you're looking for. This is the thing you deserve. Well, I don't have the money for it. Yes, but you deserve it so much you should just borrow the money for it because it's going to satisfy this need. And they never, ever, ever do. They never, ever do. I was listening to an interview with John Eldridge this last week or maybe week before last, and he was talking not about this passage or this subject at all, but he, he kind of went back through our history uh, as a society and a culture, uh, showing ways that we as a people have tried to develop and do this and do that, trying um, to, to build systems and structures that satisfy us. And he said, now we've gone completely off the grid into sort of no man's land where we're just making stuff up. You know, one person can be a them and all kinds of things that are so illogical and so irrational, it's sort of like trying to live in a fantasy land that doesn't exist, but you're sort of dancing around and singing in it anyway. And he's right, because there's nothing new under the sun. We're not going to come up with anything that satisfies the deepest longings. We're not going to create anything new that is what we want it to be. What's amazing about this is that if you study idols, not only did they receive sacrifices, right? There were a whole industry. So you had to have people that, you know, raised the animals, people that took care of them, people that prepared them for the sacrifice, people that made the sacrifices. Uh, but you also had attendants who uh, took the little idols and gave them baths and things. Good little God, let's get you clean. I mean, if, if I can pick up the God in my hand and carry him to a tub and I have to clean him, a logical thinking person at some point would go, this seems off. This seems off. I don't know what I have I don't know what hope I have of being cleansed by a God I can carry in my hand and I have to clean up. And Paul just comes into this and says, you've got all these desires. The desires aren't bad. The desires were given to you by God, but they're going in a wrong direction. There are a lot of people in your life, and some of you here this morning that that's true of. You've got all kinds of desires, and the desires are not bad, but they're going in the wrong direction. And only when they're pointed back toward God are you going to find ultimately what you're looking for. As some did here, we didn't read verses 32 through 34, but if you go on, you, you find that some wanted to hear Paul more. Some became a follower of Paul as they believed. In other words, ultimately they became followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus as Paul was discipling them. Um, there's a longer quote that won't be up on the screen because I just want you to listen to it from Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods. And I want you to think about where you are. Uh, I'll read it and, and make a few comments here. But what's funny is he talks about some of the idols that creep up inside the, the culture of the church. He says this, an idol, an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. And that's the great thing. We get afraid, man, if I confess this to God, if I'm honest about this, he's, he's going to take it away. Well, maybe he is and maybe he isn't. Maybe he reorients it so it's no longer an idol. And then he satisfies you in the place that you're looking for that idol to satisfy, but it can't do it. So you're able to engage that thing even more freely now. But he says idols or idolatry functions widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. 
This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. It is a subtle but deadly mistake. Another form of idolatry within religious communities turns spiritual gifts and ministry success into a counterfeit God. Another kind of religious idolatry has to do with moral living itself. Though we may give lip service to Jesus as our example and inspiration, we are still looking to ourselves and our own moral striving for salvation. Making an idol out of doctrinal accuracy, ministry success, or moral rectitude leads to constant internal conflict, arrogance, and self-righteousness, and oppression of those whose views differ from our own. Maybe none of those ring true for you, but most of us, if we're honest in here, we have something or someone in our life that is actively, dangerously vying for the place of God. My challenge to you this morning as the band prepares to lead us in worship, as we prepare to reflect before God, open our hearts before Him for baptized believers to receive communion, however you're going to respond. My challenge to you, my prayer for you, is that you would say, God, help me in this area. Help me with this thing. Help me with this person. Because without it, you and I will always, always be a shadow of who God's created us to be. Because wholeness is found only in Him. Only in Him. Some of the most successful people on earth are so deeply inside, uh, so deeply um, um, empty inside because they just need more success. Some of the most beautiful people on earth are deeply insecure inside because they just want to be more beautiful. Some of the most gifted, we could go on and on and on. This is not a unique problem. This is a human problem. What are your idols this morning? What is it that so easily moves into the place of God in your life? Name it. Lift it up and release it to God. And thank Him for His grace and mercy as He floods your life with His life. Let's stand and pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.